Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zara Yunus and today we're going to be talking about how and why access to credit um, in the private sector is important for sustainable growth, innovation in the economy, sustained job creation and everything else good that Pakistan's economy needs and has been needing for a long time. Uh, joining me to talk about this today is Namu Sahir. Namus is a senior financial sector specialist uh, who works in the finance, competitiveness, and innovation global practice in the World Bank, um, and has written recently about financing private sector-led growth in Pakistan. And so I figured we would have Namus to dive a bit deeper into uh, what she's seen, the research she's conducted, and how does Pakistan unlock private sector-led growth through access to credit. So Namus, welcome to Pakistanomy, and thanks for taking out the time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I want to start with, um, you know, let's give our audience a basic understanding, like, you know, high level econ understanding of why capital markets are an important player in, in unlocking growth and, and how does this mechanism work and why is it that economists, finance experts, capital market experts continuously stress the need for enhancing access to credit to ensure growth in an economy. Great, great, thank you. So I'll actually kind of take it a step back and I'll talk about the financial sector's role in, 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 in promoting growth. And then, you know, because the, the capital markets are part, one part of, of the financial sector. So you have what we call the, when you look at the banking sector, you have the, you have the financial sector, sorry, you have the banking sector and then you have what is called the non-bank sector which includes things like capital markets, insurance companies, pension funds, you know, venture capital, private equity, things of that nature. Pakistan is very, very bank-centric. So our financial sector is you know, close to, I think, 75, 78% bank-dominated. Uh, so the capital markets in Pakistan are extremely underdeveloped, uh, like most of the developing world, and peer countries even in South Asia. I think only India is the one who has a relatively vibrant capital market. But if I were to just address the issue as to why the financial sector is important, um, let's just say that the financial sector, you know, maybe I, because I work in the sector, I'm going to give it undue importance. But I think most economists would agree with me. Um, that the financial sector in many ways is the nerve center of any economy. It intermediates um, savings uh, for investment. That's basically the fundamental role of, of, of the capital markets. What we're seeing, oh, of the financial markets, sorry. And what we're seeing in Pakistan is uh, that the, the dominant borrower from the banks is the government. Uh, so all, every, every, so all the intermediation chain has broken down because all of the savings, whether they're coming from depositors, whether they're coming from pension funds, whether they're coming from insurance companies, they're flowing uh, directly to the government. And as we know, uh, you know, the government, while it obviously needs these funding to finance its fiscal, uh, growing fiscal gaps, it does it crowds out the opportunity of the private sector to borrow from 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 the banks, as it were. Um, I was actually just looking at some statistics because I wanted to kind of give you guys an understanding of where Pakistan stands on this. So Pakistan's credit to GDP, private sector credit to GDP ratio, is about 17%. Uh, it's never really gone above. I would say the top it ever reached was about 25%. If you look at neighboring India, for example, their private sector credit to GDP ratio is closer to 60%. Uh, Bangladesh is 40 percent, 
And then you have Malaysia, which is obviously a very uh, something that Pakistan economists always aspire to in terms of our growth paradigm. That's closer to about 130 percent of GDP. So obviously, in in a, for the financial sector, for the private sector to flourish, it needs access to credit. Uh, unfortunately, because of the macro situation in in Pakistan, the government's borrowing needs keep growing. Uh, so that further crowds out uh, as the private sector's access to credit. And even within the private sector, I should kind of highlight the SMEs are completely squeezed out. Uh, so of, of this 17%, I think only about, I think SME finance is less than 1% of GDP. Uh, and, you know, the backbone of any economy is, 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 is the SME sector. Uh, again, if you look at neighboring countries, Bangladesh, India, uh, the numbers are closer to or above 10%. Uh, so, so, you know, so, and those are the, those are the, so that in Pakistan in the growth paradigm, I think is one of the, you know, the fundamental problems that we're having is that, you know, we are not getting access to credit to, to, to entrepreneurs, to, 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 to like, you know, the young folk increasingly who want, who need access to credit, they're being crowded out because whatever little credit is going to the private sector, it's going to the big wigs. It's not necessarily going to, to the SME sector. So that's why I think, you know, so just to, just to kind of recap, it is the intermediary between savings and investment. And if that breaks down, then you're not going to, you know, your money's not necessarily going to go towards productive investment, uh, which is unfortunately what we're seeing in Pakistan. So, so based on that explanation, would it then be fair to say that because the sovereign consistently essentially offers amazing risk-free returns, um, and because the sovereign offers amazing risk-free returns and his appetite for borrowing continues to grow, the banking sector essentially gets lazy, right? Because if you're yeah. sitting, is, is that the fair assessment to say? They're kind of lazy. They're like, hey, the government of Pakistan will next year run an 8% fiscal deficit. I'm just going to lend to it and I can just go play golf because the sovereign will always pay me. Why bother with these small SMEs who need handholding? There may be risk. There may be all sorts of other issues. And so... Let's just lend out to the sovereign and go play some golf. Well, you know, I'm, 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 it's ironic that you mentioned golf in particular, because when I first started working on Pakistan's financial sector about five, six years ago, um, I, you know, I went and met with the big banks and tried to fully understand, because this was a very alien, I came from investment banking in London, where, you know, so this was a very alien concept to me, that the banks are not trying to increase their depositor base, they're not covering clients, you know, so, so I wanted to kind of understand what, what's going on in this space. And this is exactly what, what that he was, I will not name any names or anything, but he was the head of a very big bank in Pakistan. And this is exactly what he said to me. He goes, you know, we are not a development institution. We are not the World Bank or anywhere, the ADB or anyone multilateral looking to, you know, have developmental impact. We are answerable to our shareholders uh, and we make a lot of money just lending to the government. Uh, so, so, you know, I can go and play golf at three o'clock and, you know, and, and, and you know, and th th those are exact words that if I can go play golf at, at, at three o'clock, you know, resting easy that I'm going to make money lending to a, a, a risk-free borrower, then why wouldn't I do it? Um, so it is, I mean, you could call it lazy banking. Yes, you can't really blame. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the profits of the banks over the last two years when Pakistan has actually economically been, been you know, in, in, in dire straits. Uh, the banks have been extremely profitable because the interest rates have been going through the roof. Um, so, so, you know, uh, that, that is most definitely the case. But one thing I think, you know, which I think is, is interesting to note uh, is that this is what we call the sovereign bank nexus, right? Where, where, where the health of the banking sector is very, very intertwined with the health of the sovereign. 
play. Uh, and that's what we're seeing in Pakistan. Because the banks are so exposed to the sovereign, I believe about close to 70% of their lending and assets is to the government of Pakistan. Any distress to the sovereign will very quickly translate into, uh, into distress to, 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 the, to the stability risk to the banking sector. I mean, this is what we're seeing in Sri Lanka. Uh, and Sri Lanka, the banks are not even as exposed as Pakistan. The banks, I think, there are between 40% or 40 to 50% of their assets are to the sovereign. But because their sovereign, you know, has exhausted all channels of external financing and their macroeconomic situation is clearly a lot more, you know, dire and fragile than Pakistan. But there, you know, there is a very real risk of a full-blown stability issue. Um, and, you know, in Pakistan, I think for the first time, you know, the, the only blessing in all of this may be that for the first time, banks are actually thinking, oh, wow, the sovereign is not necessarily a fully risk-free um, borrower, right? Uh, and, and this is something that we have been trying to tell them as the, as the World Bank, you know, for a long time, uh, because prudentially, if I get slightly technical, you know, um, so after, after, the, after the financial crisis of 2007, where the subprime mortgage exploded, right? At that time, there was an overhaul of prudential regulations and risk ratings and capital adequacy ratios, because you know, they, 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 there was a recognition that banks are not effectively recognizing their risks, and they're not creating the right kind of buffers that in case there is a distress in specific markets, they don't have the balance sheets to absorb that risk and they go insolvent, like we saw with Lehman's, which was you know, unprecedented. So then they made a lot of allowances in terms of, you know, liquidity buffers, uh, you know, you had to risk rating of depending on the type of borrower so that you had enough capital in reserve so that if there were NPLs in that, in that area, you could kind of absorb it. But even in that space, the sovereign was considered to be risk-free, right? So what we're seeing is in Pakistan, the capital adequacy of the banks is, 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 is well above the minimum requirement. I think the minimum requirement in Pakistan right now is about 11.5%. I think banks here are closer to 16, 17%. So they're well above it. But if you think about it, these, these, these buffers are just for, the, for their lending to the private sector, which as I said, is a very small proportion of their lending. So, if, so in reality, you know, the, the, the banking sector is very exposed to the sovereign and sovereign distress can very quickly translate into, in, in, into you know, issues in, in, in the banking sector. And these are things which, you know, I think the only kind of maybe silver lining in, in all of what we're seeing economically in Pakistan, I think there's an increasing recognition in the banks, in the state bank itself, um, that we cannot, you know, um, treat the sovereign as, as a definitive risk-free borrower. Uh, and this, you know, may then hopefully uh, break some of the inertia in, in the lending and, and maybe bankers will start paying a little less golf, you know, that maybe, maybe. We can uh, on, on the Lehman Brothers note, like one thing I, I was an undergrad at that time and I vividly remember the day Le Lehman went under, we were hanging out in the cafeteria watching CNBC and, you know, people taking out their computers and all of that. It's like, etched, it's one of those days that's etched in my memory as a, as a young student in, in undergrad studying economics. Um, the, the one thing that I remember from that also is that there was this essential view that there were quasi-sovereign guarantees as well, right? Things like Fannie Mac, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae, et cetera. The market believed that, yes, they were private, but the state stood behind them. And there was this kind of like gray area. In the Pakistani context, something I've seen in Adil Mansur, who follows the agricultural sector, came a year or so ago and basically explained 
that you have commodity debt in the commodity cycle in Pakistan, which is quasi-sovereign, where the sovereign essentially is now borrowing to make interest payments close to over a trillion rupees at this point in time. Um, that Where does that understanding in the banking sector of the quasi-sovereign debt and the SOE debt stand? Is that considered fully uh, sovereign as well in terms of their analysis of capital adequacy ratios, et cetera, or is, is in Pakistan, is that the same problem that it's kind of like in the middle where nobody knows how to treat it? So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think most of this debt has an implicit uh, sovereign guarantee, right? If you're lending to an SOE or if you, so, so there is an obs- particularly on the com- commodity debt. It is presumed that the sovereign will backstop it. Uh, but I think one thing notable, like for example, in 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 because I actually just moved to London the week Lehman happened, and my and I went in consulting to PwC, and my first job was actually to go to Lehman Brothers London Canary Wharf and kind of sit through there because they had open trades which weren't settling, so we had to manually sit and go and do that. So it was a very very distressing and disturbing scenario. And but having said that, at that time there were many banks that should have failed. It was just wasn't Lehman, right? A lot of them were bailed out in a very very big way by the governments. Uh, so, but in the Pakistani context, because of the sovereign debt nexus, one thing to keep in mind is that the the sovereign. If, if there's sovereign distress, the sovereign doesn't have the fiscal space to bail out anyone, right? Uh, the banks are in trouble because the bank, the, the sovereign does, has, has, is in, you know, severe macroeconomic distress. So the notion of the sovereign bailing out uh, in these kind of situations is, 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 a, is a mute point because, you know, it's, it's something else that if, you know, a sector explodes, but the sovereign is still fiscally liquid, they can come in and bail out banks. Here, it's, you know, it, it, it would actually be a, a deep crisis in the sense that you wouldn't really even have anyone. And a state bank is a lender of last resort, but, you know, there's only so much even they can do if there's a full-fledged financial sector kind of crisis. And, and I know some of my listeners, because I've received similar comments when the state bank autonomy debate was going on and we had a couple of episodes, were saying, well, in this situation, Namus, I did death their thought I can read it, actually, as the comment is going to come. The sovereign can print money. They can work with the State Bank of Pakistan and, and print money and bail everybody out. Explain to people how terrible of an idea that would be if you come to a situation where the sovereign has to do that to bail out the banking sector. I mean, just think about the inflationary pressures, right? That is the main thing because you, well, what, you can keep printing money, but then your inflation is going to go through the roof, right? So, so, the, so the notion of, you know, I also hear this often that, you know, the that the, the country is, uh, you know, have, a, have we been hijacked by the IMF and, you know, we can't borrow from the central bank and the, you know, we, this, the private sector credit is getting further crowd, crowded out now because banks can, have much more appetite from the government to borrow. I mean, so those points, I mean, in some ways I understand where they're coming from, but if you look about the long-term development of an economy, you know, the role of the, of, of, of the central bank as in Pakistan is, is price stability, right? So, but if, if, if they, their, their role is convoluted with bailing out the banks and printing out money and giving money to the, to the government, they have no control over the fiscal discipline of the, uh, you know, of the government as is, and the inflationary implications are just going to be immense, right? Uh, so in Sri Lanka, for example, the, the central bank can lend to the government still, uh, and look at their inflation, you know, it's, 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 I mean, in Pakistan inflation is also high, but, you know, obviously, because there are some kind of buffers, we're not obviously not, I think our economy, hopefully, I think is on its way to stabilization. But, but you know, but those are the kind of reasons why you can't. You can't have on tap money, printing money, because you're going you know, to basically, your, your prices are going to go completely through the roof. 
And then people, uh, just I'll add to that, people talk a lot, a lot about the exchange rate sliding. Um, in that scenario where you start printing money, um, you're looking more at, a, I would say, less of a Sri Lanka and more of a Lebanon type collapse yeah, of your yeah, currency's yeah. valuation. Um, and then imported exactly. inflation is going to be through the roof on top of exactly, everything else exactly, as well. Exactly. Um, so one in the economy to function properly, everyone needs to stay in their lane and do what their mandate is. And there might be pain points when you adjust to that kind of, you know, synergy. But I think that's important. All financial, uh, you know, agents need to be doing what their fundamental role is and kind of stay in their lane. That would be my main kind of understanding in this space. One other thing that I've sort of followed and noticed over the last couple of years um, in sort of like, uh, what would I, what's the term? Econ Twitter, Park Econ Twitter, let's call it that, is this debate about the state bank's policies around turf and subsidized access to credit and, you know, getting banks to, or encouraging or forcing banks to lend more to the real estate sector, et cetera. How have you viewed that development in terms of uh, where the state banks try to go? Because on paper to me, it seemed like the right approach where they're trying to push banks to lend. But then when I've looked at people who studied the data closely, their argument has been twofold. One, that is basically going to the big guns um, and it's being used for that. The other thing they've also argued is that in, at least especially in, in the last few months, a lot of the private sector credit gains have been sort of inventory for, for booking inventory uh, because of the commodity hikes. And so their argument is, yes, the state bank is pushing towards that, but essentially it's, it's, it's not going to the sectors that you know, deserve it in the sense that they're smaller, they need access to credit to scale, et cetera. How have you seen the push from the bank um, in the last two to three years saying, hey, here's subsidized credit, lend to people who deserve it? So, I mean, I'm, I, I believe you've had my colleague Gonzalo on, 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 on your podcast, and he's done a lot of work on this. And so I think you've captured some of the main points. Like from a, but he'll, he'll give it to you from, a, from an export diversification kind of lens in the sense that, you know, they're not diversifying who's getting access to this fund. If I, if I look at it purely from a kind of financial sector perspective, there's a couple of things. Well, firstly, number one is it's inflationary. That's, that's one thing to keep in mind, which is something that, you know, the IMF has also had, 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 had concerns about with the state bank, that the rates are much lower than benchmark rates. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's contra to your monetary policy. So that's, that's one side of it, but that's kind of on the, on, on the macro side. The, the other side is this, that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the, what we, we always say that the market needs to be, you know, whatever comes into the market needs to be sustainable and needs to be market-based. Uh, you know, subs interest rate subsidies are not necessarily obviously normally the best instrument. We think more of things like de-risking, you know, to give some kind of a credit guarantee so that the price of the debt comes down. That is more aligned to kind of market realities and, 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 and things of that nature. But I think that, you know, this, this feeds into the whole kind of other paradigm. It is, it, there is a, 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 an almost a, a big guns capture of this space. Right. Uh, uh, they, I think if, if when I gave you the number of private sector credit being 17% of GDP, I think about a fifth of that comes from refinancing schemes of the state bank. Uh, so, you know, so, so the banks, even, it makes them even lazier. So whatever private sector lending they're doing, about 20% of that is coming from these kind of schemes from the government. So, I mean, you know, we, if we want to build the discipline in, in the banks, 
to risk price their risk effectively, to go out and look for clients, to diversify their kind of client base. You know, the, 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 this, it's not necessary. I mean, at the time of COVID, for example, globally we saw this. A lot of central banks, because there was a, it was a very different kind of environment. We wanted to keep the lights on in businesses. You know, the economy, they wanted to make sure there was demand, productivity didn't increase. So there was a lot of this refinancing happening at that time. But now we're seeing the inflationary impacts of that in, in you know, many countries across the world. So I think, you know, so that's one thing. So I, to my mind, and this is the stance of the, of the World Bank group as a whole, and we've had these conversations with, with the central bank many times, that, you know, we do understand that there is a role for development finance in Pakistan, specifically given the fact that the government is a do dominant borrower. Uh, there needs to be some kind of development finance institutions, whether it's an infrastructure bank or whether it's something, something you know, which is a wholesale financer that promotes investment towards kind of priority priority sectors. We just don't think it's the job of the central bank to do that. Uh, you know, their their mandate is completely different. And the whatever way that these schemes are introduced into the market should be in a way that is sustainable, that doesn't create bad bad, bad lending habits, uh, that isn't captured by a by a specific specific group. And it needs to be sustainable with very limited fiscal implications for the government. So you know, those are the kind of views, but you know, but we also do understand that it, because it's been so hard to move the needle on things in Pakistan and exports being such a big priority, I mean, very fundamental to our growth model going forward. Um, but, my, but, but, you know, and we now do have an exim bank that hopefully will take on this role going further. And, you know, and, and we, so, so hopefully things will, will change. Because, but I think the central bank also now realizes that, you know, these schemes need to be perhaps managed outside of the central bank and need to be managed in a way which is more inclusive and more kind of market-based. One last question on sort of the, the structure of this lazy borrowing sovereign financial nexus, as you described mm -hmm. it, right? Um, this is a thought I've had for a long time is that the state bank cannot pursue, it can try pursuing price stability, but it cannot achieve price stability when the sovereign itself is not being prudent about their spending because they're going to run gigantic fiscal deficits and the bank will always be playing catch up in terms of trying to stabilize prices, but the price instability is coming from these deficits. What's your take on the fact that it takes two to tango here, right? The state bank by itself, you know, when it raises rates and people have this debate in Pakistan, oh, this is cost push inflation, raising rates is not going to solve the problem. My argument to people is, well, the bank is trying to pursue its goal and it's basically imposing fiscal prudence on the sovereign through the back door by making it expensive for the sovereign to borrow. And in the hopes that, okay, by that, that will force prudence uh, on the finance ministry, essentially. Um, but the, if the finance ministry or the sovereign itself does not follow a prudent fiscal strategy. Do you think price stability can ever be achieved just by the state bank doing doing its own thing and pursuing its mandate? So I mean, I'm not an economist, so I, I, I so I, my, 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 you know, I please everything I say in the economic realm, take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> I don't want to be misquoted as the World Bank says. Uh, but I think, you know, it's fair to say, I think that, that that's absolutely true, that they cannot, there is a contradiction. We're even seeing it now, there's these open market, so the state, there's these open market operations where the state bank is injecting a lot of liquidity into the market. At the same time, they're, you know, raising the rates. So again, you're kind of like... Which again is, is to, your, to our point about lazy banking, right? It's like the state bank is saying, here's some money on a certain rate, 
and then lend it back to the sovereign exactly. with a nice spend. on a margin exactly on a margin and you choose the margin when we when we when we auction you can choose the margin so i mean i think that's that's a very good point because i think you know this is what our our, our if you, uh, the, the the pdu the special section that we wrote this is what we highlighted we said that there are fundamental structural problems in in the pakistani economy you know which 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 mean that in the medium to long term in the in the short to medium term i would say we're not going to see the kind of intermediation that we would like to the fiscal you know deficit of the government the very limited revenue mobilization you know these kind of things those until the government has less need to borrow from the banks you know the banks will keep lending to the government and the state bank has done has tried to do things they've They've, 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 they have this new regulation on taxes. If your advances to deposit ratios are below a certain point, you, 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 you have to pay a, a higher tax. I believe in the new budget, there's also added, you know, so they, so they, so they try to, the government does try to claw back whatever profits they think they're unreasonably giving to the, to the banks. But, you know, this is a fundamental structural problem, you know, the, until and unless the dependence of, 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 so there's two ways that this can be done. Number one, either the dependency of the banks decreases, so uh, of the government decreases, so the banks look for business elsewhere and go and actively create innovative products and you know finance the real economy as it were. Or if failing that, if that's not happening, given that you know these are fundamental structural issues, then financial inclusion is the way forward because then you need to increase your depositor base, right? Then you need to ensure that you have a big because even though the government's borrowing needs are immense, they're not infinite. Um, so the, the, at some point, if banks have a much larger depositor base, they will need to deploy it elsewhere, right? And those are policies that, you know, state banks to be congratulated. They are making very, very big and strong efforts, especially in the digital space uh, through, you know, upgradation of the payments infrastructure. Uh, I think they're leveraging the Nadra database quite effectively in terms of, you know, you know, minimizing uh, KYC costs and uh, onboarding costs and things of that nature. So I think failing the, the fundamental structural problems, I think, you know, um, State Bank is wise in that they're trying to increase the, the pool of funds at least, so that at some point banks will have li ample liquidity and the, which they will need to deploy more towards the real sector. Yeah, I think on, on financial inclusion, the, uh, we've made this argument on the podcast a couple of times is, you know, Pakistan was the first mover on digital ID. India was not. Mm. But then India connected digital ID with digital payments through UPI and zero balance bank accounts. And it fundamentally changed the game in terms of financial inclusion in India, not only financial inclusion, but direct benefit transfers, because all of a sudden deserving citizens had access to zero balance bank accounts connected to their Aadhaar. And the Sarkar could basically look at that data and give you the benefits you deserved and the leakages were plugged essentially, right? So they connected soil health cards to fertilizer subsidies and all of a sudden fertilizer theft went away or didn't go away, but it got cut down significantly, right? And in Pakistan, we have the infrastructure through Nadra, now through digital payments to do that. The zero balance bank accounts is a, is a sort of missing piece in the puzzle. But I think from what I've heard, they're moving towards that direction. But to your point about sort of, you know, the state trying to claw, claw its, its, its things back from the banking sector, I almost see this as like the US war on drugs. 
where the, if there is demand for drugs, you know, the state can finance a war on drugs and try to say, okay, we're going to go after the supply side of this. But hey, if people in your country are demanding this thing, there will be supply and there will always be supply <laughs> so long as you don't deal with the demand, right? And that's the problem with the sovereign. If it's running seven, eight, nine percent fiscal deficits, this is what's going to happen. And that's the structural problem we need to deal with. Um, just one data point that I was looking at yesterday, um, just to put things in perspective, because people a lot of times ask like agricultural tax, agricultural tax. Uh, Dr. Halia Snen put up this slide the other day showing that agriculture contributes roughly 23% to GDP, while its contribution in tax revenues is 0.1%. Mm -hmm. And that's just not sustainable. You cannot have a sector so large getting away without contributing its fair share, right? So that's part of the fiscal base uh, problem. But let's let's switch to how do we solve for this? In, in If you were to sort of be given a magic wand and say, hey, pursue these policies for the next 18 to 24 months or 36 months, um, how do you begin going about solving this problem where access to credit is mobilized to sectors that actually generate sustainable growth in the economy? How do we go and begin that transition? So, I mean, first and foremost, it's the bigger structural issues which cannot be resolved in 24 to 36 months, right? I think with agriculture tax, you know, I think broadening the tax base is, is very important. With agriculture, I would add property tax. You know, I think Pakistan is very under leveraged in, 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 their, in their property tax collection. So whatever they can do to, dip, to kind of, you know, increase own source revenue and the tax base, whatever. But those are the kind of broader, longer term agendas. In, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the financial sector, I mean, I think there's, 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 there's a few things that, that could potentially be done. So firstly, as you said, I think the NADRA database infrastructure, I have always said this, is world class. You know, the, 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 this is one of Pakistan's biggest assets, I would say. It's, it's a digital asset, um, and it's not leveraged effectively, right? Um, but, I wish, but as you said, we're seeing an increase, increasing use of, of, of it and linking it to the banking sector through the telcos as well. I mean, a lot of these um, subsidy payments that were done uh, as part of the COVID response to, to, the, to, the, to the households, they were done through the NADRA database and the telcos. Unfortunately, they were, I believe, cash transactions, but at least they've started understanding that, you know, this, this infrastructure can be leveraged in, in, in to, for, for this kind of uh, distribution of, of social welfare payments. Uh, there's talks that at BISP and ASAS and all of these, I don't even know what's called anymore, um, to kind of bring in these kind of mobile wallets, leverage RAST, you know, so, so, so there is that movement in that space. So I think the NADRA, um, database uh, and and these the, the new regulations around easy easy Asan wallets and and you know these different drafts these are seamless peer to peer kind of transfer this kind of thing if we can kind of use that to increase the depositor base right because brick and mortar banking is pretty much done you know globally you know uh, so if we can use this kind of digital infrastructure to bring in money in, into the financial sector i think that's 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 something that should be prioritized in a very big way because i would sort of sort of add to your point brick and mortar is done and we've established in our discussion that traditional banks are lazy so somehow we need to insert competition into this space to grow exactly. the deposit base exactly exactly and, and 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 that to me is kind of the future and the policy makers seem to be cognizant of the fact i think the one issue is obviously financial literacy 
you know, uh, a lot of people don't understand, you know, what RAST means, and you know, they think EasyPass is too expensive. You know, so there's a lot, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done around awareness building in this space. But I think that's a huge growth opportunity. Uh, it also obviously can lead to formalization. Uh, you know, it's a bit, because going digital is not just because, for example, if I am a vendor. Like in, in China, like you see those nano loans, which are approved like in two minutes, right? And, and it's not that it's a formal business in, 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 the, in, the, in the true sense of the word. It's just that because that guy has a mobile wallet, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 anyone who, Alibaba's or whoever of the world, and financial, I'm not sure who operates there, they have access to all of his digital transactions. They know how much money he received in the month uh, in revenue and how much he paid, whatever their outlays were. Even if he's not a registered business, they can give him a nano loan because they can see, okay, this. So you know, in terms for so it's it's for access to credit, having that kind of a digital in, infrastructure in, in footprint, even for the smallest businesses, becomes very very important. So I think that is a huge growth growth opportunity. I think the microfinance sector in Pakistan, you know, microfinance has I think eight to nine million borrowers, uh, which is and I think the formal financial sector maybe has one, if that. Um, so they, they are a huge uh, age, especially for ag finance. Now they're diversifying into things like ag insurance, uh, housing also. So I think that's, that's, that's and, and what, what's happened in Pakistan, you know, the, they, they, the, firstly, you know, it expanded very quickly, but then it's kind of plateaued. And what we're not seeing is the, the product innovation because a lot of the households are now graduating. Their needs are, those enterprises are slightly more mature. They need, you know, they need micro insurance. Uh, or they need a slightly longer term loan, or, you know, so, 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 or they need some kind of specialist technical assistance to complement the loan so they can build their business, right? And, and again, the Pakistan Microfinance Network is to be congratulated. They are kind of working with the microfinance sector to work towards that end. Uh, microfinance operating costs are very, very high. You know, I think the average rate for microfinance loans in Pakistan is between 30 and 37% or something. And they say that, that that's because 16% of our costs are operating costs, it's not the cost of funds. So there's opportunities to digitize that as much as possible. Um, you know, you don't need someone to go to a farm to give the cash and take the cash. Again, this feeds into the digitization thing. You know, if you digitize a lot of those transactions, it'll bring that the cost. So if you can bring down the cost of lending in the microfinance sector, if you can diversify, again, that's a huge growth opportunity. Um, I think venture capital in Pakistan is, you know, risk capital, as we call it. We've seen a huge amount that came in uh, over the last few years. We have young entrepreneurs. Because of the mushrooming things that are happening with the RAST and the payment infrastructure, and, you know, so, so, so there, is a, there is an ecosystem that develops around that in terms of e-commerce and, you know, things of that nature. I think that's a huge growth opportunity. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so, and, and then at the end of the day, when it comes to development finance, things like trade finance, infrastructure finance, housing finance, you know, then there needs to be some strategic kind of thinking around how the capital markets can be developed better. So coming back to your first question. So the role of the capital markets is basically to raise long-term local currency. Banks, by definition, don't have long-term funds. They have a depositor base in Pakistan, especially most of their deposits are current accounts. It's not their business to give a 15, 20-year loan, right? Even though they're doing it, it's not their business to do it. There's a rollover risk and all of that kind of stuff. So the capital markets need to be developed so that you have that longer-term fixed-rate funding for housing, for infrastructure, for productive investment. So those, to me, if uh, so financial inclusion through digital, microfinance and leveraging digital again, risk capital, 
uh, and entrepreneurship and capital markets. Those are the areas, if I were, you know, given the charge of finance minister or governor state bank, I would, you know, prioritize, especially in the, in the short term. And obviously the structural issues remain and they, they are something that, you know, bigger brains than me can tackle. I think the access to risk capital, particularly in the last three to four years, right, has changed attitudes. I, I remember my generation when you know graduating from iba or lums or heading back to pakistan after studying abroad the goal was hey i want to go work at standard chartered or engro or unilever or nestle um this generation younger people who message me asking for advice are like hey i want to go work at a startup or how do i succeed at starting my own thing and then raise money because i have an idea i think that's amazing right and that potential by giving access to more risk capital to these budding entrepreneurs or these newer firms, I think can be revolutionary in the five, 10, 15 year. And yes, a lot of them will fail. That's the that's the game with at-risk capital. But you know, it's it's it that attitude shift, I think there's something to be said about what's going on. And I think that will have an impact. Um, on the sort of, you know, where um we go with things like financial inclusion and as others, I think we just need to insert competition. The traditional sector, I agree with you, is just too lazy and, and, and we need to figure out a way to, to solve for that. And then maybe that leads to that leads to some level of innovation in this space because the need for sure is there, right? But it's just that, as you said, um, the banks don't really um, need the, feel the need to do that. And then finally, I would love your thoughts on this point in particular <laughs> that you have, um, this need for long-term finance across the board. And that's what's needed to fund manufacturing industry, new industries, et cetera. But you've mentioned this, the real estate sector, for example. Right? And the, the point I always make is that why would an investor invest in Pakistan when the returns in Plotistan are amazing? Because you, know, you get a real estate amnesty scheme, no questions asked, the taxes are nothing. Um, you get amazing returns just by trading on files for barrier town or name your housing scheme, right? Um, how do we solve for that? Is this just a tax and incentives problem from your perspective? Like, hey, if the state says, we're going to make sure that, for example, the city of Pune no longer raises 10x in property taxes in the entire province of Sin, maybe that changes incentives and then tells people, hey, look at other avenues for getting your returns that you need because the lazy way of real estate investment is gone. Or is it a bit more complicated than that? Because you know, capital isn't going to flow where the incentives are. And my view is, well, it's not going to flow into the manufacturing space because Pakistan is amazing as an investment. So, I mean, you know, this goes into, you know, if you look at Pakistan's growth model, it's consumption driven, right? Which is, which is, which is the biggest problem. Our investment is actually very, very low. Whatever growth we have is consumption and our economy overheats. And then every five years we have a, we have a fresh crisis. To my mind, again, I'm not an economist, but you know, I do listen to colleagues and read the newspaper and I, I work a lot on housing finance actually in Pakistan. So I, I've studied the sector well. I think you have a lot of wealth creation that's happening in the real estate sector. So we're not really able to suppress demand in Pakistan. Like, you know, you'll see like this, this whatever this be inflation, very high inflation, the rupee is, you know, the lowest it's ever been. Uh, in this environment, you have people buying Audis and God knows what all, because um, they, they, they have bought a plot like five years ago that's tripled in value, right? So you have this, it's like lazy investment, you know? So you have lazy banking, you have lazy investment. So it is very, very detrimental to, 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 uh, to, to many things because it's the consumption driven model 
it's feeding consumption and it's it's and it's crowding out investment. So I and and I and I do think that it's about the incentives, right? As as you said, it's not tax effect. Like I've always said that there should be a tax on unbuilt up land. If you buy a piece of land and and two years you don't construct, tax it. You know there needs to be the capital gains tax in terms of you know even on files you should tax them. Any capital gains in real estate at some level you know, need to be taxed. I mean, and, and, and this space in Pakistan has historically also been very opaque because, you know, we didn't even know who owns the land. So there was the Benami law, which was passed, I think, which was a very, very big, uh, you know, breakthrough in the real estate sector that you couldn't own property in anyone else's name. Uh, otherwise, you know, you basically, you and the person whose in name you had it would, could go to jail for up to seven years. So, I mean, that was a fundamental kind of shift. I don't know if it's being enforced, but, you know, so these kind of, you know, this until and unless this kind of very easy wealth creation in the real estate sector can be broken, uh, you're not necessarily going to see, uh, you know, any kind of meaningful investment in product. No one's going to go to the capital market. No one is going to kind of, you know, put money in mutual funds or things of that nature because, you know, this is just easy. It's, 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 they're also very liquid, surprisingly. It's very easy to offload property in Pakistan. So it's most definitely an issue, and I think policymakers need to really, really think very careful about it because it's not just a source of lack. Of, it's not just that they're losing out on tax revenue. The opportunity cost in terms of investment is immense. I fully agree, and I think this also connects to, at some level, devolution of power. And I'll give you my own example here in Washington. My friend's uh, neighbor, um, the house was uh, was vacated, um, and it was classified as a residential property but it was vacated and no one was living there. And so the DC government's residential authority, which is the regulator for the real estate sector, sent an inspector, checked out the place, concluded that this was vacated property and the property taxes on this property went up 10X. And the guy had to sell it the next day, right? Because the city's policy was you cannot buy a property and let it sit empty to accrue capital gains 10 years down the road because it's bad for the city in its economy. Um, we need affordable housing and we need a vibrant housing market. So either you live in it yourself or you rent it out. But if you're not doing that, if you're not developing or conducting economic activity on this piece of land, your tax rate, there's a vacated tax law. It's 10x than the residential or commercial yeah. tax law, right? Which makes absolute sense. That's how it should be in even in a country like Pakistan. And it should be connected to local governments because they're the closest to the market action when it comes to real estate. So they should have the power to sort of figure out what's going on in their communities and determine how they raise the money to develop the environment around them as well. And I think we don't have that. It's a big missed opportunity. India is much better. It's not that India is amazing in that regard, but even just in terms of what they mobilize is just huge. And it could be a game changer uh, for Pakistan as well, both from a tax collection as well as, as you said, from the economic opportunity cost point of view. No, and, and we've seen that, you know, this in, it's London, for example, Londoners are priced out of the market now because, you know, the Russians used to be the Russians, the Indians, all of they, they have bought out all of central London for this kind of reason. And that's an example. There was this whole thing that there should be a lights out tax that if a house is vacant, as you said, in D.C., I think, but the lobbying was so strong. But it has it has not only uh, it has also the way a city urbanizes. It has problems of that nature. Right. You have you have urban sprawls because people are actually working and contributing economically to a city 
can't afford to live in a city. So it, it you know, which in turn has environmental implications and all of that kind of stuff. So, so, so it's 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 a huge area. And I, you know, any if any policymaker is listening to this, please pay attention to this because this is a fundamental problem in in, in Pakistan's economic structure. I think the only thing that would happen if they start moving towards that is, you know, it would actually even benefit newspapers because all the construction industry ads will come out saying how they're under threat because of this taxation measure. But that's just <laughs> how it works in Pakistan. Um, but Namus, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, before I let you go, what are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read? And it can be on any topic, doesn't have to be related to finance or banking. So I actually went up uh, to look for some books to kind of, and I'm very upset to see that I've most of the books I like I'd lend to someone and they haven't returned them. But uh, one I which I really enjoyed. So all of them are nonfiction, and all of them have nothing to do with the financial sector. Uh, just to because you know I, that's not what I like to read, to be honest with you. Frankly, i I've, I've uh, in in this age of iPhones and all of that, I don't remember the last time I finished a book. But these when I did read, these were the ones I enjoyed. So one is called On Human Nature by E.O. Wilson. It basically talks about evolutionary psychology. It basically talks about how things like, you know, aggression or altruism or, you know, how, 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 how if you look at the way from hunters and gatherers we have evolved, these are kind of things that, that were part of our survival instincts. So it's, 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 it's very interesting in that sense. And one thing which, which I found most intriguing in that was it, talk, it talked about it's taken like millions and millions of years for us to develop these character traits. But the world is changing so quickly now that a lot of them are becoming obsolete in the new kind of reality. So that to me was a very interesting book. So I highly recommend it on human nature by E.O. Wilson. And the other one was um, this status anxiety by Alain de Botton. And this talks about, it's basically a critique of capitalism and how we all kind of buy into the rhetoric of keeping up with the Joneses and historically where this comes from and, you know, the, how it, it will be the downfall of, of humanity at large. Alain de Botton writes a lot of books on like love and, you know, literature, and I, I highly recommend his, his, his books, but the status anxiety is one that really, really struck with me. Thank you for those recommendations and thank you for your time. This has been wonderful. And, you know, maybe when the real estate tax comes and some of the reforms we've talked about start happening, we'll have you on again to talk about how you see these. Um, but in the meantime, keep up putting out research. Um, I enjoyed the read. It's linked in the description below. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Zaire. Take care.